0: Hello, welcome to the University of Brighton podcast. I'm Richard Newman. This is the podcast which speaks to academic staff and students at the university and goes into more detail about topics which has an impact on both the university and the wider community. My guest this week is Professor Jeff French, a global thought leader in the fields of behavioural influence and social marketing. Jeff has been a visiting professor at the university's Brighton Business School for over 12 years. He's also the CEO at Strategic Social Marketing Limited. He's also currently working for the UN. Jeff's recently published a paper on promoting vaccine uptake and strategy for COVID-19, which is gaining a lot of traction. And we're going to talk a lot about that. Thanks for coming on, Jeff. Let's start at a very basic point for those who might not know. Can you explain, first of all, what social marketing is?
1: Yeah, thanks for inviting me, Richard. It's great to be with you this morning. Yeah, social marketing basically is about taking, learning about uh, marketing practice, effective marketing practice, and using it to solve and understand social problems. So, for example, Using marketing principles of segmentation to look at, say, a, smoke, a smoking population, and help to refine interventions and support programs for different segments of the smoking population. So, it's yeah, it's taking all that kind of know-how concepts and principles of marketing and applying them to solving social
0: problems. Mm. So helping to uh, achieve those, um, to to achieve social good, has that always been a strong value for you from a a young age?
1: Yeah, well, I kind of, I I spent 30 years working for the National Health Service uh, in the first part of my career. And I I always wanted to kind of, before that I was a teacher. So I've always worked in kind of public uh, service. I, I you know believe in that I believe in you know us collectively working together to make the world a better place. Um, however, I'm a big supporter of the private sector as well, and the last twenty odd years I've worked uh, a lot in the, with the private sector. so I think public service is really important, but public service can be given by both public servants but also by people working in NGOs and the private sector and and citizens and community groups as well so yeah. It's important to me. I think collective action is effective, efficient, and, and can ethically uh, you know, kind of sound as well. So yeah, I'm, I'm pretty committed to doing what I can to make the world you know, a little bit better. Yeah, yeah.
0: And, and you have an extensive background. Can you give us a whistle-stop tour of, of how you arrived at this point? Because I know you, you're very prominent in social marketing and you even led a, a government review into it in, uh, in 2004.
1: I'm a biologist by background, that's my first degree. Uh, I worked as a teacher for a number of years. Uh, Then I worked in in, in local authorities and then got a job in the National Health Service. Uh, I worked in uh, what we called health education in those days, you know, back in the 70s. Uh, And then transformed into a thing called health promotion, which was more than just educating people, tackling things like the the causes of disease and and, uh, ill health. Inequalities and so on. I then became a public health specialist, uh, worked in public health for many years. I'm lucky that I've worked in not far from Brighton, in in in, in the, uh, the health service, but also in uh, the north of the country as well. Uh, so I worked at a district level, local authority district level in public health for many, many years. Uh, and then I got a job uh, for one of the government central agencies. It was called the Health Development Agency. Uh, which was an executive agency of government. I worked there for a number of years and then as a civil servant. Uh, And then about 15 or so years ago, uh, I set up my own kind of consultancy and uh, I've worked on social marketing projects and programmes around the world. As part of my career, I've also kind of tried to keep one foot in uh, the world of practice, uh, you know, developing... Policies and programs to to create social good, but also another for in the academic world, because I'm interested. I'm you know I'm intellectually curious about how do we create effective, efficient and ethical programs to make the world better. Uh, I'm not just interested in doing. So I'm interested in the theory of that and what I've have found. I mean I've, I've I've been offered academic posts, full time academic posts, and resisted those because. Uh, I've always felt that kind of the mixture of, you know, a practical application of, of theory, uh, but backed up by that theory, is probably, you know, the most effective and efficient things that we can do in terms of designing effective you know, an ethical programs. So, yeah, for me, it's been an interesting journey of riding those two horses at the same time, mm. but I found a lot of kind of benefit
0: from, from doing that. Yeah, and you've been at the University of Brighton, as you said in the introduction, for, um, for quite, a, quite a while. Um, visiting professor here, what, what's drawn you to the university?
1: Well, I, I don't live so far from the university, <laughs> that makes it a bit easier. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I, I had a lot of respect, I do have a lot of respect for the staff that work at the business school in, in, in marketing. Um, Sarah Cork and Matt Woods until recently, and it was Matt that invited me to come and uh, work on marketing. Uh, uh, courses at the university in the business school, Uh, which is actually quite interesting because um, if you look at a lot of academic, there's there's a whole kind of academic infrastructure around social marketing globally. Most of those um, social marketing courses are contained within health or public health departments within universities. Uh, So Brighton's quite uh, unusual. In that its focus on social marketing actually sits squarely within the business school, yeah. so those marketing links are very very strong. So that was also one of the attractions for me. I I, I teach at, at, at Kings and I'm a fellow there on the public health course, uh, and so i I know a lot about public health. That's where a lot of my career has been. But you know I've tried to build a deeper connection and understanding as much as I can of you know business processes and planning processes. Uh, including kind of you know marketing because I think you know it it seems to me we're in the world now of you know transdisciplinary intersectoral problem solving and if you just sit in as most universities still are in silos academic silos uh, that's not seems to me the best most efficient and effective way forward what we have to do is try and build bridges between these, these, these silos or pipelines and try and connect people up as much as we possibly can. So one of my other interests, I guess, is, is kind of scanning what's being developed, what's being learnt, new theory that's coming forward, new technologies from a whole variety of different disciplines. Now, so, I suppose you could. The downside of that is you become a, you know ultra generalist and you don't know much about you know, specific areas, and I'd certainly put myself in that camp, but we do need some people doing that, making these, you know, reaching out and making these connections, because that's where it seems to me, not just the kind of theoretical, but the practical, uh, you know, kind of learning, you know, flows from that bridge building and pipe building between these various disciplines. And I, I see lots of academics accepting that now, particularly people, Lots of people work in social marketing. Marketing itself is a multidisciplinary um, uh, field of study. If you like, it draws on psychology, you know, biology, systems design, uh, a whole range of different, you know, kind of subjects, anthropology, research. So, and since that there's a, there's a kind of a natural fit with my kind of uh, academic curiosity. <laughs> Of, of focusing as much as
0: I can on on marketing.
1: So I don't know whether that answers your question, but. Yeah. <laughs> yes,
0: uh, yes they're <laughs> <is>. a right angle. <laughs> yeah. um, let's get stuck into talking about your paper, which is Key Guidelines in Developing a Preemptive COVID 19 Vaccination Uptake Promotion Strategy. Uh, this is a huge talking point as we hopefully move closer to um, one or a range of effective vaccines. Uh, what's the key thinking behind this paper? Is it to stop misinformation? Who's it aimed at? And, and what sort of traction have you had so far?
1: Yeah, it's, it's certainly um, aimed at kind of t- trying to prevent some of that misinformation or, or more likely, I don't think we can prevent it. That's one of the problems. We have to mm-hmm. kind of deal with it and, and blunt its impact. But yeah, where this paper came from, I mean, myself and a number of colleagues who wrote this paper, and Samir pandy from Griffith University in Australia, Doug, Evans, Professor Doug Evans from uh, George Washington University in America, and Raphael Obregon from UNICEF. We, we, we've been discussing um, response today, you know, to date uh, to the pandemic. And one of the things that kind of distressed us was that most governments, the vast majority of governments and public health agencies have seemed to be playing catch up with the, the virus. I know it's an unfolding virus, it's a new virus, we're learning about, you know, a lot about the epidemiology of it every day. But in terms of the policy response, it's tended to be slow. And where it's been slow, uh, the, you know, the impact on uh, infection rates and deaths has been bad. Whereas in countries that have moved faster, uh, New Zealand, Vietnam and others, uh, the impact has been much less. So what we thought was, we, what we need to do is try and get ahead of the game. Uh, what we know from our our interest in social marketing and public health is that the anti-vaccination movement is already out there and motoring, um, sowing seeds of doubt in people's minds uh, about trusting government and and kind of trusting vaccines. And when you look at the numbers of people around the world who um, are cautious about uptaking a vaccine, you know, we may think of it, That will be the solution. That's what will get us back to normal. But there's large percentages of the populations in many countries. You take our own one, for instance, the UK, America and so on, similar countries. But it's only about 70% of people that would readily take up a vaccine tomorrow. So it's a big chunk of people that are not going to want to take it. You go to places like Japan and there's only about 40% of people that believe vaccines are safe and, and would take them up lots of you know so there's lots of resistance some countries you know actually very interestingly African countries trust rates are about 90 percent. okay so it varies around the world but if if we if we develop a vaccine and I think you know we've got fantastic life sciences in this country you know I think the UK is going to help save the world through some of the vaccines that come through Um, so let's project forward a few months we've got you know january february next year we've got a vaccine uh that works and is safe uh, and we've managed to produce in millions uh, uh, of doses now the job is to get it out there so there's a logistical job of getting it out of there but more importantly there's a promotional job because a lot of people are going to say no way am i going to have that i don't trust it what about autism what about you know bill gates him? In- Planting microchips in me through this, whatever (laughs) the stories that are out there. So, there's an absolute imperative to start thinking and planning for how we're going to actually promote the uptake, not only just logistically make it possible and easy, Mm. but how we're going to positively promote the uptake of, of that vaccine. The good news is that we know a lot about how to do that. You know, there's a mass of research out there about you know how to go about planning, implementing, delivering and evaluating vaccine uptake programs, because the world's been doing that for a long time. Mm. One of the problems is that there is so much data, so much guidance, so many academic papers that exist out there. If you're coming to this as a local public health specialist, it will take you several years just to catch up with what the literature is telling you should, you should do. So the, the thought behind this paper was, many of us have worked on, on these kind of issues for, for many years. I've worked in our big European projects on, on, on vaccine hesitancy and so on. Um, and my other colleagues have as well for many, many years. We thought, let's just try and take the mass of what we know and condense it down into you know, 10 top tips about what the evidence and data tells us. If we do these 10 things, chances are the uptake of vaccines is going to be increased. Vaccine hesitancy is going to be lowered. So that was the basic thought. Let's get ahead of the game. Let's start planning now and let's condense down and make it more kind of accessible for governments and and professional agencies and professionals to take what's known and start to use those 10 building blocks to develop a a programme that hopefully will uh, ensure that we get, you know, the vast majority of the population vaccinated, and then we can get back to
0: normal. Mm. We'll, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about a bit more about the anti-vaccination movement in just a moment. I wonder if before we get to those points, some of the some of the difficulties in a vaccine uptake, maybe not so much from a, that traditional anti-vax movement, but more because of the vaccine race which is going on around the world. There's a good article in The Observer this weekend about how, in their words... The vaccine race is getting dirty; corners being cut for the sake of political gain and profit. Perhaps is, is that is that a danger? I mean, there are major elections coming up, the USA, for example. Is that a major? Is that a major fear?
1: Yeah, of course. You know, with uh, um, you know, there's the papers out this week and previously saying it'd be a really big mistake for the Americans to rush a vaccine, you know, into production just to kind of fall in line with an electoral. Kind of cycle. And of course, you know, I'm a kind of biologist by background, uh, public health specialist. I absolutely would not stand behind, uh, you know, vaccines being rushed out until they've gone through proper phase three trials. Um, you know, ethical considerations have been considered. Uh, so we know, you know, we've got good evidence that the thing works uh, and that, uh, you know, it has very small to know, low to know uh you know negative side uh you know uh, uh, impacts or effects so of course we want all of that s- stuff in place it's not just about you know recklessly promoting the first vaccine that comes along i.e russia type you know we've got a vaccine we've tested around 100 people nobody died let's vaccinate the whole population no you know we absolutely don't want that what we want is an open and honest Look at and a a thorough process for developing safety protocols and effectiveness. uh, Kind of uh, measuring that, having it published in an open and transparent way. Let it be, you know, interrogated by all the great great scientists that are out there. If it passes muster, uh, if it can be produced uh, in in sufficient quantities, uh, then we get it out there. Okay. One of the the problems, of, of course, is, you know, this is a geopolitical issue. It's not just a health issue. Is that there will be, uh, I think, some, uh, as well as that kind of trying to kind of game uh, vaccine distribution for political gain, there's also going to be kind of vaccine nationalism. Um, you know, I can't see places like Russia and China being very happy to take a a vaccine that's developed by America or Britain you know that's going to knock their you know global prestige and, and sense of self-importance um so you know those issues are to be, to be addressed I think one of the best arbiters in, in in that kind of situation is the WHO uh you know not without its critics and I think it has made some mistakes but I still think it's the best organization that we've got out there To pronounce, you know, again, great, great, you know, hugely eminent scientists working there as well. Um, You know, I would tend to trust uh, WHO's pronouncements on safety and efficacy uh, uh, of vaccines. And I'd also trust uh, the UK public health uh, establishment as well. Uh, uh, I mean, I think to our credit in this country, I think we've made some huge mistakes at the beginning of the pandemic. On uh, public health, England, you know, there are there are issues I for the government to, to answer. Uh, but having said that, the depth and you know uh, openness of the public health debate here, as we've learned more, is I think hugely impressive. You know, people can you know uh, challenge that most data is 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 out there; it's transparent. So in a sense, we may have made some huge mistakes, but I've still got a huge amount of faith in. The fact that we are an open and learning you know society uh, and i think that will pay dividends you know in in the medium to to, to long term as well yeah. so yeah um you know there's a ways to go it's not going to be uh, easy um but i think in terms of dealing with that kind of you know that political stuff that needs to be steered away from and in terms of the you know, kind of nationalistic tendencies of some countries. I think again, we need to be guided by what the data and what the science is telling us about works.
0: It is a bit like uh, our modern-day space race, isn't it? And more, more nationally, just in the UK as a whole, or just you know, a country's rollout of a vaccine when or if it does come about. How do you make sure that there is uh, an order in who? receives the vaccine first
1: yeah well, we do mention this in in the paper as well that governments need to kind of have this debate and ideally you know in countries like our own where we're fortunate enough to have open and transparent debates that's possible uh, that there should be a public debate about that i mean the current thinking uh, in most countries that have made pronouncements so far is that it you know the, the criteria will be around public safety and uh, addressing those people who are vulnerable. So things like frontline workers um, of all kinds would, would be offered vaccines uh, first wave. Uh, and people who are at most risk, i.e. older people, and old men like me, would get it first <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> because we're the most vulnerable. Uh, and then working down through you know, risk categories of, of the rest of the population. That seems to me to be you know, reasonable you know, in, in terms of efficacy and, and ethical practice. But those those things should be debated openly, is what we say. Uh, And again, it's another reason why the planning for rollout needs to be happening now. We don't want to be having these debates, you know, two days before we're ready to, you know, know, Mm. send the lorries out with the vaccines to every you know GP practice and veterinary practice in the country to start jabbing people. We need to have that debate and, and and general consensus. And it seems to me in the UK, that kind of approach, key workers first most vulnerable and then working your way down through categories Mm. would be the way to go.
0: Yeah. And it won't please everyone, of course, um, whatever order it goes in. But uh, how much interest have you got from the government so far with this paper, if any?
1: Yeah. Yeah. We've actually sent it to quite a few uh, governments, not just the UK. Mm -hmm. And we've had some, I've had some very nice feedback from number 10, something very useful and also the Welsh uh, and, and Scottish governments. So uh, you know, I've sent it through to my contacts there, and again some nice positive feedback. Mm-hmm. And we're getting feedback from all over the world on uh, uh, the, the paper. You know, generally saying that it's very useful. My colleagues in America and Australia uh, are kind of disseminating it. You know, through their own kind of networks. Uh, today we've had you know hundreds of responses. We've only had one negative response. Right. Uh, and that was from a person I won't name them. <laughs> uh, but uh, they're associated with an anti-vax group okay. uh, saying that um, we shouldn't be, you know, willingly promoting vaccine uptake. It should already be about uh, being driven by the science, which is a fair fair mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. We, do, we do say that in the paper. So we're not saying, you know, let's just have a vaccine, doesn't matter what it is, you know, inject them really now. We're saying cautious, transparent development, agreement that the thing is safe and works, and then big push on mm. uh, promoting its
0: uptake. How optimistic are you that governments will listen to it? Then,
1: uh, I think it's variable. I think some some countries like our own, um, you know, uh, as I've said, you know, the public health response in this country was a bit slow. But I think since then it's been pretty reasonably good. Um, uh, test and trace is still catching up a bit, but the public information side of things, the communication, the kind of health marketing if you like of uh the you know what we should do what we shouldn't do has been pretty strong uh, i think government's done a reasonably good job on that um and i you know i know already that um people like alex aiken who's head of the government communications to look at this paper says has you very useful and they will be applying a lot of this practice I mean, in a sense i'm not too worried i mean i think the uk and other kind of countries with well-developed public health and health promotion, um, health marketing programs, will do a, a good job, and they'll, they'll tailor specifically. I'm more concerned about countries where that infrastructure doesn't exist. And, you know, in, in many countries around the world, you know, that infrastructure is not, is, is nowhere near as strong as it is in, in the UK. And there's huge, you know, amounts of disinformation, you know, out there many of the ex kind of soviet countries uh, their public health systems are weak anyway and their kind of health promotion health communication uh, uh expertise and experts that they have on tap very thin on the ground mm. so you know the, the challenge i guess the global challenge is not countries like the uk america australia france germany and so on you know within a year uh most of the people in those countries will be vaccinated i'm pretty confident of that and they'll be you know be safe to travel and so on it's when we get to countries where like ex-soviet countries pakistan you know many other countries where we can't even get children vaccinated for you know common diseases for which we have vaccines that can prevent them so getting global elimination of covid 19 is a you know twenty or thirty year project, uh, and it's going to if you know potentially exacerbate inequalities that already exist. Um, so that's the global effort, you know, and I really hope that the UK, uh, as it's you know been been saying, will be a kind of global leader in you know promoting you know not just vaccine uptake in the UK, uh, but vaccine uptake. On a global basis, particularly in those countries that are, you know, don't have the kind of infrastructure that we do.
0: How major a role is the media going to play in ensuring there is an effective vaccine uptake?
1: Huge, huge role. Again, this is one of the, the, the there's two points in the paper that we talk about the need for proactive collegiate management with traditional media sources and also you know, social media sources. And real effort needs to go into that because, you know, we saw with the the Wakefield um, debacle back in 1998 over, you know, links between vaccination and autism, MMR and autism. Um, And the the echoes of that are still rippling through the world. You know, uh, a huge amount of uh, uh, ill health has been produced by, you know, that. Uh, kind of reporting of that Lancet uh, paper when it came out and misreporting of it as well and much less reporting of the retraction of that paper Um, so the social media traditional media have a huge moral and social responsibility I think to step up Um, again I I think it's been reasonably fair the coverage so far certainly in traditional media Uh, but going forward, when we get into a position where we're seeking to promote a vaccine, uh, they have a huge responsibility to uh, help us to do that. And in the paper, what we talk about is the need for governments to be reaching out to traditional and social media uh, providers and planning, uh, you know, tactics and you know, storylines, editorials, giving access to you know, experts, making data available to everybody in an open and transparent way.
0: Which also so, means, that that also means governments having to ditch some of the allegiances they may have with certain media and some of the grievances they may have with yeah. others too, which which is, means they yeah. need a bit of a behavioural change themselves, both, uh, I, both absolutely, of
1: them. Absolutely, yeah. You know, this partisan kind of media, particularly in old traditional media, print media, mm-hmm. you know, that needs to be careful, you know, long hard look needs to be taken at, at those kind of existing relationships um but uh there's also something else let me say this in the paper that government needs to do so what ideally what we want is proactive collegiate two-way you know briefing pre-briefing data sharing uh all of that going on now not two or three months time <laughs> um but also push comes to shove the government has a role to step in and stop i mean at one level if misinformation is given by um, uh, any kind of news outlet, that needs to be spotted and, you know, challenged and retraction sought. A public track retraction sought. Governments need to be doing that. Need to be on that that case, particularly with kind of uh, social media. And you know, one step beyond that is if, um, and I think now is a crunch point in this kind of relationship that's been, you know fractious and not particularly helpful particularly with social media over the last few years is to step in and legislate if social media continues to spread you know miss and false information that's not just you know it's not about you know trolling somebody because they're reading the wrong kind of skirt this is about life and death governments need to step in and legislate and penalize you know in you know uh, at, at times of extreme crisis, you can think about the war. If we're in a war situation, you, know, you can slap D notices on things so things cannot be reported. You cannot talk about these things. You know, I, I would hope we wouldn't get to that situation, but certainly governments need to be thinking about how they legislate and enforce that legislation on media outlets, social or traditional, mm-hmm. that um, continue to spread uh, misinformation that ends up killing people this is you know blunt as that
0: yeah the anti-vax movement has always been there it's clearly brought to the forefront now with all kinds of conspiracy theories you mentioned one earlier the uh the bill gates microchip things like the 5g masts was a another one yeah. false stories about clinical trials going wrong um yeah. social media as you said doesn't help um where, where does where is all this? Where is that narrative being driven from?
1: Well, well I, th- I think the anti-vax movement is not one thing, and so there are a variety of different motives that drive that. Some people, you know, have personal experience of a negative reaction to a, to a vaccine. Some people in the Netherlands, uh, uh, there's a group called the Anthropomorphists, who kind of on religious grounds don't believe that any form of uh, chemical substance should be put into a body. They, they think that's Religiously, kind of, uh, you know, forbidden. Um, uh, there are some people that are just uh, conspiracy theorists. There are some extreme right-wing and extreme left-wing people who don't trust anything governments do. So there's a variety of different, um, uh, you know, anti-vax uh, motivations, if you like. Mm. And one of the things that, again, governments and public health agencies need to be get to get be getting better at is identifying those different groups, if you like, segmenting the competition and uh, taking out or reducing the, the kind of voice of those people as much as possible. But it's w- what we know, and again, we talk about this in the paper, if, if an approach is to the anti-vax movement is taken where you just seek to call them out for the, the kind of transmission of misinformation uh, and say, no, that what you're saying is actually wrong, that actually doesn't work. <laughs> what the research we have we've got you know tells us is that uh, uh, in effect sometimes all that does is actually amplify what they're saying you're just kind of fanning the flames of that particular narrative so what governments and public health institutions need to do is they need to try and shut down those um, those conversations they need to amplify the positive social media and traditional media that's out there and there's a lot of that as well seek to amplify that you know And thirdly, and probably most importantly, is create a compelling new narrative, not it's dangerous, it's Bill Gates, it's 5G or or whatever, but a new narrative about the need for and, uh, you know, personal and, and collective benefit of vaccination. And that narrative needs to be built around people's existing values, what they value uh so things like for for parents one of the things what do they what do they value they value you know the safety uh and health of their children that's what it's about So, so don't try and kind of you know push things that people are not particularly interested in like you know let's get herd immunity uh you know most people are not interested in herd immunity they're interested in being safe personally and their families being safe so we need to build narratives and probably a series of different ones with different groups in the population. Uh, about, you know, this is why it's good for you, and and good for others. And also sometimes, if you don't uh, take up the vaccine, the these are some of the real costs to you uh, about things that you're getting that you that, that matter to you that, that you value. I guess one of the trickiest
0: um, things to change the narrative about would be the. Concerns that you know this is a, these vaccines are being created at unprecedented speed, and yeah. we simply do not know that, yeah. what the long-term effects may be. That's the trickiest. Uh, that's the trickiest thing to turn people's m- minds around yeah. on, isn't it?
1: Well, yeah. If if, if that were true, uh, because what's happening, the reason we don't have vaccines now. Uh, if somebody offered me a vaccine, say the Oxford vaccine, now I would take it mm. without hesitation. It seems to me. It's already proved, been proved to be effective. But I can't do that because uh, they're engaged in very large scale stage, stage three trials. That's the entire point. Mm-hmm. It's the reason we don't have a vaccine now, even though it physically exists. I mean, we've got millions of doses already made and in boxes. You can't get it because it's not gone through the proper uh, you know, testing protocols. It's not been written up. And that that write-up has not been scrutinised by thousands of academics around the world, uh, you know, to come to a conclusion that yeah, this kind of uh, is a safe and effective vaccine. So, I think that the narrative uh, now, to come to that one, I, you know, they're being rushed into production. We don't know whether they're safe or effective, or whether they have, you know, unfortunate side effects. That that narrative needs to be, you know, addressed now with a, an alternative narrative that's about um we're doing it properly we you can't get access because we are making sure we're testing it thoroughly before you get it now you know scientists are saying that but that's not you know you don't see that on the on the kind of you know broadcast or social media much as a story you know, why can't we get it? Because we're
0: doing it properly. It's been fascinating to talk to you about this paper. We're going to put the link to it in the podcast description. So if you're listening to this podcast, you can click on whatever podcast provider you're listening to, click on the link and uh, scrutinize it in real detail. Um, so we, we finish each podcast with something completely uh, away from this, some questions away from your work. We ask every guest the same questions. Mm-hmm. Just, some, just a quick fire round. What advice would you give to your younger self is the first question. Uh, don't specialise too much. Okay. Yeah, you did mention that earlier on the podcast, actually. So there we go. Um, <laughs> if you can pick uh, any other subject study at the University of Brighton, what might that be?
1: Oh, oh that's, that's a tough one. I don't know. Do you do, you do fine art?
0: Yeah. I don't know whether you... Mm.
1: If he no, something, something arty. That's one of what the I'm best like. in
0: the, one of the best in the country, Jeff. So there we go. You can come and study <laughs> Robert, one. Of us. There you there go. go.
1: That's that's my next
0: course. <laughs> um, can you pick a favourite place in Sussex?
1: Yeah, Hassex. I used to live there.
0: Mm-hmm. um if you gave visitors to Brighton or the area a tip of one thing to do, just at a weekend so that they can't miss out on, what would that be?
1: Well, you have to go on the pier and have fish and chips on the pier, don't
0: you? Yeah, yeah absolutely. That's a must yeah um tell us something interesting about you which a lot of people may not know
1: i'm interested in martial arts i'm a second dan in kendo japanese fencing
0: okay that's one of my
1: i like i like hitting people on the head with a stick okay um
0: and finally if you could pick three people to host at a dinner party past or present um excluding your family uh who would they be and why
1: Karl Marx. For obvious, I'd really like to kind of pick his brains about you know, his view about whether his theories have panned out or not, or when, when they will. Freud, uh, again, similar reasons to see what he thinks about the way that his theories were, f- were developed, taken forward, and are now questioned uh, quite a lot. And Philip Kotler, uh, who's a kind of marketing guru, who's a, actually he's a friend of mine, he's still alive in his 80s. Uh, just to talk to him about marketing for social good and what he thinks of both Freud and uh, and Marx's views as well. That would be an interesting chat. Mm,
0: definitely. Uh, Jeff, it's been great to hear about your paper. Such an important topic, and we hope it has an impact as well. Thanks so much for coming on. Pleasure. Uh, that's it for this week's podcast. But we'll be back next week as we begin to look ahead to the new academic year and all the things you need to know as a new or returning student. Thanks for listening.